It's not a rule book. It's not a science book. It's not a textbook. It's an epic drama. And we're being invited to enter this story and to see ourselves in it. And I think probably the biggest tragedy is when people are bored by the Bible. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollandsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Thank you, James. Welcome to another edition of Heath in Pursuit. I'm Heath Hollinsby here today to talk with uh, Carmen Imes, who is an associate professor of Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta. And she wrote a book that was sent to me by her publisher called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. And it is incredible. This is one of those books where I I go, if this is true, I have to rethink everything. And I think this is true because this is a beautiful story now. And it's so much more amazing than the faith that I was taught. And I I had a really hard time reading this book and like actually going to sleep and, and getting my mind off of it. It was constantly just being plagued by some of the things that she was presenting and going, well, now, wait, hang on, now that I see it this way, this makes sense, and this is tied to this, and this might be tied to this, and this might be tied to this, and it unlocked a beauty to the Old Testament that I have never had an appreciation for, and so I thought, I would love for her to to talk, and maybe it would do the same for you. So, uh, so Carmen, thank you, first of all, for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. People that have listened to the show for quite a while know kind of that we bounce around between uh, many different topics, and one of the things that's become really important to me is is the Old Testament because it's something that in American evangelicalism I felt was left out as unimportant. Mm-hmm. And what your book did for me was reinforce the fact that um, that no, this this really does matter, and you can't cut out half of our story, yeah. you can't cut our history, yeah. and get the full picture. And so, with your Old Testament knowledge, one of the things I'm curious about is the more that I mature in my appreciation of theology, the more I actually do find myself spending time in the Old Testament. Mm. But I know many people, even friends and conversations I've had with people close to me, don't typically spend a lot of time there. Either it's hard to understand, uh, or it's confusing, or even the commentaries don't really do a very good job of trying to make sense of it all, Mm. or we don't understand the rituals. Uh, and you would argue that Christians actually need the Old Testament here and now. And so I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious, why are you so passionate about the Old Testament? What do you find beautiful about it? Why did you mm. determine that this is what you want to specialize in? Mm. Maybe you could fill us in on that. Sure, yeah. I remember as a kid already loving the Old Testament, which tells you how weird I am. <laughs> yeah, that's unique. I mean, I, I took my Bible outside at recess in second grade and tried to gather people around and start a Bible reading club. Oh, wow. And it didn't last very long. I don't think we even made it maybe a whole recess. <laughs> we were going to start in Genesis and read our way through the whole Bible at recess. Oh, man. Um, I remember in, in fourth grade, free reading time after lunch, I pulled out my Bible and the, the teacher's like, you need to find something else to read. It was oh, in wow. a Christian school, but she wanted me to expand my horizons. And the thing I really was most interested in was the Bible. So my love for the Old Testament goes back a long time. But I'm sure there were lots of things in the Old Testament I didn't know what to do with. Hmm. And when I got to Bible college, I was just struck by 
how full of life it is. You know, we've got these epic stories in the Torah. Yeah. There's the passion of the prophets who are willing to be socially unpopular in order to declare what they what they truly believed was the word of God. Hmm. Uh, you have the brutal honesty of the Psalms and the book of Job and Ecclesiastes that are just wrestling with honest questions. I feel like there's so much here for yeah. Christians. And yet, as you said, we get stuck because we don't know what to do with it. There's a lot of strange stuff too. Hmm. So when I was trying to decide, you know, should I specialize in Old Testament or New Testament? I, I really felt like, well, lots of people specialize in the New Testament, read the New Testament, have there's so many resources for the New Testament. If I could help Christians rediscover the Old Testament, that's where I could be making the biggest difference. That's really amazing to find uh, such beauty at such a young age. And, and to, hmm. I mean, I'm sure now that it's kind of backfilled with the, you know, the passion of the prophets, the honesty of the Psalms. Yeah. Um, did that come naturally to you? Or was there, like when you were growing up, was there someone... Uh, kind of pushing towards that? Or did you just naturally kind of find this this Old Testament super intriguing on your own? Yeah, I, I remember listening and taking notes in church. Um, we were part of the Christian Reformed Church growing up. And so um, there was plenty of preaching and and even hymn singing that related to Old Testament stories. I was in Sunday mm. school every week, so I was getting a lot of exposure, but that doesn't grab everybody's attention. So I don't know quite how to account for my fascination with it. <laughs> sure. I, I really liked the book of Isaiah. I remember mm. that in high school, that was my favorite book. Um, and mm. you know, you, you might be able to surmise from that, that I had a little bit more difficult time with friendships. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but I, you know, there, there was, <laughs> I was I was not the cool kid. Yeah, the uh, touching the coal of the lips doesn't work so well in uh, <laughs> you're trying to build friendships. <laughs> One of the things that you talk about a lot in the Old Testament, and I've heard this before, and I've never never asked anybody kind of what it meant. I just I wanted to pretend like I knew, so I I felt more educated or I, that I looked. <laughs> but, but you talk about this concept of liminal space, and um, mm. and and before we get going too strong in this conversation, I'm wondering if you could unpack this in a way that a common person could understand and and maybe talk about how this shows up throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, sure. I think liminal space or the idea of liminality, um, that's a word I came across multiple times in seminary. I'm pretty sure I had to look it up every time because it wasn't <laughs> sticking. Sure. Um, uh, but, but then partway through my doctoral program, I was kind of ruminating on it again and realizing, wow, this is really key to spiritual life. So the word liminal is from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. Hmm. So if you're, if you imagine standing in a doorway, you're neither in nor out of the room. You're just, you're in between. So liminal space is that in between space and, and all around the world, you know, cultures have their own kind of rituals, coming of age rituals, marriage rituals, where, where someone changes from one identity to another. Hmm. And every ritual around the world includes an element of liminal space. Hmm. So so if, if you think of the young boy who's coming of age, he gets sent off into the wilderness. He has to survive on his own for a while. That's liminal space. He's no longer a child. He's not yet a man. Uh, and he has to sort of wrestle with his identity in that place and improve himself. And so liminal space is where we become something new, where we become something different. And I remember um, 
coming across this concept again in my doctoral studies and thinking, I wonder, you know, this is such an interesting idea, this, this place of becoming, of changing. I wonder if there's any place in the Bible where we, where we really get liminal space. And then it hit me like a brick in the forehead. Oh, uh, yeah, the wilderness at Sinai, you know, leaving Egypt, yeah. the, the people of God leave Egypt and they're wandering around or they're camped out at Sinai for quite a while. Hmm. And that's liminal space. They've left behind everything they knew in Egypt. They're, now, they might not have liked life in Egypt. They were being oppressed. But but you have um, a clear sense of, like, who's in charge? Where do I get food? What's my job to do? Sure. So everybody has their place. And as soon as you get to the wilderness, it's like, who's in charge here? And where do we find food? And where are we even going? Yeah. And who's going to protect us? So there's a there's a sense of disruption. Hmm. Or um, um, my favorite word is disequilibration. <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> uh, you know, where you just get knocked off kilter yeah. because nothing is the same as it used to be. And those are the times in our lives. We all go through liminal periods in our lives. Those are the times we feel most unsettled. Hmm. But God does his deepest work in us. You know, that time yeah. where we're waiting for a job offer or we're waiting to figure out what to do next or we're waiting to get married, hmm. or we're waiting for the baby to come. There's so many times in our life where we pass through these seasons of in, being in between, and they're so uncomfortable, but that's where God does some of his most important work. Yeah, like the already not yet is is kind of, I've yeah. heard, right? Like, yeah. Um, is that something that you think is more accepted or familiar to our Eastern brothers and sisters than it is to us in the West? I'm not sure. That's an interesting question. I, I do feel like there are some traditions, some church traditions, I'm thinking here of Eastern Orthodox, yeah. that that have more of a space and an embrace of mystery, Yep. and they don't need to nail everything down. Yeah. And so maybe they've exercised those liminal muscles, like they're, they're, they're less um, jarred by this sense of not being in control and not understanding everything. But we yeah. in the West have such a a deep need to understand and to be able to explain things. Yep. And so that space becomes extra uncomfortable for us. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I actually wrote, um, and I tour occasionally, I wrote like a 75 minute Ted talk on, on mm. this concept from Alan Watts, who is a, he's a British philosopher who had a really special knack for taking Eastern thought and applying it to a Western mind. And his, the premise mm. of that show was that, was that, for for typically westerners we're always moving towards the next thing like we live mm -hmm. very linear like mm -hmm. you you you're raised you go to college you get a good job you build your yeah. career you head to retirement and then you die and then you travel and then you die uh yeah. and so this liminal thing seems to be even as you're sharing i I'm, i tend to be more mystic kind of in my thinking these days mm -hmm. um and being more okay with the unanswered questions and the mystery and i just find that yeah. the reason i was kind of getting at that was i was thinking you know, growing up in the church in America, I've never hit a pastor that goes, you know what? I don't know. Or maybe we're not supposed mm. to know. There's always mm. an answer to something. And so that mm. liminal thing kind of yeah. stood out to me in your book. You know, one of the things you wrote about that I thought was fascinating, and I never saw it in the way you presented it, was your take on the Ten Commandments and how you view all Ten Commandments yeah. to be a bill of other people's rights. Uh, now, mm. God's right to be worshipped exclusively and represented well uh, but the household's mm -hmm. right to rest, and and people often kind of divide between 
the commands that are God focused and the commands that focus on mm-hmm. other people. Uh, mm-hmm. But you think that distinction actually hurts rather than helps. And so I'm kind of curious if you could yeah. maybe walk through your, your views on the, t- the Ten Commandments and, and reframe it sure. in a way that might be new to some of our listeners. Sure. Well, f- first off, I need to give credit to Daniel Block okay. for this this concept of the Bill of Other People's Rights. Hmm. I got that from him. He was my doctoral mentor. Um, and he's the one who got me started on the Ten Commandments in my doctoral studies. I did my, I wrote my dissertation on the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. Oh, wow. Exodus 20, verse 7. So spent five years deep diving into that command. And um, I, I made a lot of discoveries along the way that surprised me. And one of them is this this idea that the commands are divided. So many people divide between the, the commands that focus on God and those that focus on other people. Sure. But I think if we take a step back and see what are these commandments to begin with, hmm. um, that that concept, that distinction between God and others starts to fade. And, and the reason is because these commands are not universal moral prohibitions that okay. God is announcing for all people of all time everywhere. These are specific covenant stipulations. God is drawing Israel into a covenant with himself at Sinai, and he is offering them the opportunity to be his representatives among the nations. Mm. And so for him, for them to represent him well, here's how they need to live. And mm. so all 10 commands are outlining or, or maybe painting a paradigm of what a covenant-keeping Israelite should look like. Okay. And, and in my view, and, and you can see this worked out in Scripture, if my neighbor is worshiping a false God and I'm, and I'm living in ancient Israel. That's not just between him and God Hmm. that, that he's violated that command. It's not just vertical. It has a horizontal impact because he's now putting our entire community at risk by being unfaithful to the covenant. We're now all susceptible to God's wrath. And you see this in the book of Joshua, when the people of Israel enter the land, they fight against Jericho and they're supposed to destroy everything. But one dude takes a few things that he thinks are sparkly and pretty and he doesn't want to destroy and he buries them under his tent. Hmm. And the entire nation loses the next battle because he didn't follow instructions. Um, yeah. And then they have to root out the sin from their midst. So so every one of the commands is an affront to God. It, it, a breaking any one of the commands is an affront to God. And every every breaking any command is also um, putting my neighbors at risk hmm. because I'm... I'm not holding up my end of the bargain at Sinai. Okay, this is fascinating because I've had a uh, one of the first guys I interviewed uh, was a was a buddy of mine, William, and we had great conversations on on uh, tribalism and stuff like that. And one of the things we've talked about was was Ten Commandments being kind of like this: Hey, if we're going to succeed, if we're going to thrive together, then there's some rules we need to set. You know, like it's yes. probably good that yes. we're not sleeping with each other's spouses because yeah. this is going to be really bad for everybody and also right. dishonoring to God. It's a vision for a new kind of community. Mm. If you compare this to treaties, because this is what happens at Sinai is basically Yahweh's making a treaty with Israel. Um, if you compare that to treaties or covenants in other ancient Near Eastern contexts, you find the commands are very different. The mm. The stipulations involved in those covenants are very different. They're They're international in scope. You know, you you shall not make an alliance with a king of another nation, sure, um, because that would be disloyal. But for Israel, because the 
the covenant is between God and Israel rather than two nations, then the commands become interpersonal in scope. Because if you are sleeping with your neighbor's wife, that that I think is the, the equivalent of a king making a, a treaty with another kingdom that's um, showing disloyalty to the original covenant. Hmm. If you're sleeping with your neighbor's wife, the, the um, bonds of trust in the community are being severed. And you can, if you can't trust each other, how can you be this covenant community? When I'm thinking through the way I was taught the Ten Commandments, it was a moral code to mm. help better your individual life. And what mm. this sounds like is it's a yeah. reframe of like, no, this isn't just for you to feel better about your conscience being at ease. Like this no. is a way, this is an agreement we individually but also collectively need to take in order for us to thrive yes. together. Yeah, I think that's maybe one of the biggest takeaways I hope people have from my book is that in that um, our relationship with God is not an individual matter. Hmm. This is not just between me and Jesus in my closet, you yeah. know, what my belief system is, but that God, when we enter into a relationship with God, we're joining a covenant family. Yep. And then we're by by joining that family, we're taking on the vocation the the reason for being in the world, which is to represent him among the nations. So my obedience is not at all a personal matter. Hmm. It's 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 very public. The way I behave reflects on God and his character. And if I if I'm breaking the commands, it's it's a poor reflection on what kind of God I claim to serve. Yeah, that is so good. What a reframe from the way I've typically heard that. Okay, mm-hmm. let me jump off topic a bit and, and ask something I didn't. It's a curveball, but because you did okay. your dissertation on it. Um, yeah. Maybe like a 30 second, if you can, or even a minute yeah. on on taking God's name in vain. Is it is it much yes. more than, than using curse words? <laughs> yes. In fact, it's. It, I don't think that is really what the command is about at all. <laughs> we think of that command as prohibiting some kind of speech, like we shouldn't say God's name in a certain way or in a certain context or um, disrespectfully or whatever. Hmm. But the Hebrew actually reads, you shall not lift up or carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And you won't find an English translation who said, that says carry or lift up the name of Yahweh your God because because translators come to this and they're like baffled. Hmm. Well, we don't carry names, so what could this possibly mean? And they think it's an idiom or a figure of speech for something else. And they land on this. Well, it must have to do with saying the name in some way. I don't think it has to do with saying the name, hmm. um, although I don't advocate that we use God's name disrespectfully. Sure. Uh, the command is is saying to the people of Israel, Yahweh has put his name on you to claim you as his own. It's like they all wear this invisible brand or an invisible tattoo of his name to show the nations, to, to declare to the nations that they belong to Yahweh. Hmm. Therefore, they're not to carry that name in vain. They're not to live in such a way that when people look at them, they get the wrong impression about who Yahweh is. Wow. So it has it's way bigger than how we say God's name and when we say God's name. It it touches every area of life. Wow, that is amazing. Thanks for clarifying that. I, I want to read yeah. this dissertation too. Oh, you're welcome to try. If you don't mind Hebrew font and <laughs> and Greek and stuff, um, I can yeah. try to plow through it. Yeah, like you said with with your growing up, how you like reading Isaiah and and mm-hmm. uh, and Old Testament on the playground. I'm I'm the nerd that doesn't go out on Friday nights but sits home and 
reads dissertations and uh, sweet then you'll love it you'll love it you're my kind of (laughs) nerd okay so let's talk about god showing up because this is a theme that is a kind of this the mercy of god in the old testament Mm -hmm. which um is is not i don't know if it's the first when i think of old testament and character of god and Mm -hmm. his attributes um Mercy is not one I typically would jump to because I, mm. you know, you look at you look at the wars and his vengeance and anger and mm. and and so we know, you know, there's a covenant between God and His people. Moses mm-hmm. goes away, the covenant's broken, yeah. uh, and after that covenant's broken, the tabernacle starts to show up, or maybe like I should say, the plans for the tabernacle. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious what's going on here. Like, is this God promising that He's going to keep on pursuing His people even after they've broken their end of the covenant? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. You know, we usually like the part of Exodus where there's plagues and people are coming out of Egypt and, you know, the Red <laughs> yeah. Sea and all that. And then we get to Sinai and there's all these laws and all these tabernacle blueprints, instructions, and we just sort of tune out. If we're doing a Bible read through, we're just skimming at this point. Um, yeah. But it's really fascinating to slow down and look at the order in which the events occur at Sinai. So they're given the Ten Commandments. They all say everything Yahweh has said we will do like they're they're Mm -hmm. in they're willingly participants in this covenant. And then Moses goes back up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days getting tabernacle instructions. Now, why would you need a tabernacle except to have a place where you can offer proper sacrifices to repair a broken relationship with Yahweh, to re Mm. to re-cleanse yourself. And it's while he's up on the mountain that the people kind of get bored and they're not sure what's happened to him. So they decide to build the golden calf and worship that. And so while Mm. they're breaking the covenant down below, Moses is up on the mountain getting the plans that once they build this place, they will be able to repair broken covenants. And so wow. it's as if God is saying he, he's already anticipating their failure and their need for restoration. And he's making he's providing the means for it before they even know they need it. Now, standing hindsight on this side of, of the resurrection and the I mean, that is that is a common character of God. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. He <laughs> it's, anticipates it's, our need. Yeah. And then, and, the, and, and then he does the work to actually keep the covenant. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, and a lot of people look at the Old Testament law. This is so pervasive in, in evangelical circles. They look at the Old Testament law as something negative that's just there to point out how I can't keep it. Hmm. And that shows us our need for Jesus and woohoo, he comes later. I don't think it works to read it in context, to read the Old Testament law in context and come to that conclusion. The law, God never expected perfect obedience. He made a way for them to to be restored when they failed. And so that implies to me that he wasn't expecting them to be perfect. He was expecting them to repent when they needed to repent and to keep Hmm. pursuing him. And he, and he he built built in this plan is a means for restoration. And so if it's just meant to show us, you know, you'll never measure up, then why would God have made ways to repair and move forward? What's happening with the golden calf is not not the end of the covenant. So Moses comes down the mountain, he sees what they've done, and he shatters the tablets, the stone tablets, um, as a sign 
that the covenant has been broken. But this does not spell the end of the covenant. It just means that this generation, those who've participated in this uh, worship of the golden calf, have disqualified themselves. They've put themselves outside of it. The covenant itself isn't, isn't, hasn't come to an end. Um, God wow. had said to Moses before he came down the mountain, let me destroy these people and I'll start over with you. I'll make you into a great nation. Like, in other words, let's keep this covenant intact, but we're just going to narrow the scope until it's mm. just you um, and your descendants. And Moses intercedes and God relents and says, in fact, it says, it says that God repents of his yeah. desire to, to wipe out the nation. He changes his mind based on Moses' intercession and and they move forward. Now, there's still consequences for those who were flagrantly disobedient because they did so openly, rebelliously, willingly. Um, there's consequences for them, but the entire community isn't wiped out. You know, what you just hit was one of the most significant pieces of, of the book to me, mm. uh, and it was that repentance of God. Mm. And when I read, uh, when you first presented it, it stopped me in my tracks, and it was kind of one of those moments that was like, I saw the world like narrowing in in my eyes and I was like, <laughs> if I've, this is such a new concept mm. because what, because why would God repent? Does God really listen to mm. like, you know, when I was in a certain theological camp, it was like, well, God, God does not listen to your prayers because there's no need because he's sovereign. He doesn't change. Mm. You can't mm. change his mind. And yeah, so the this, prayers are this just I, for us or something. They're not, they don't yeah, actually. You can't really. Yeah, you you don't have the relationship because of what Jesus has done to actually approach God to have a dialogue and convince mm-hmm. him otherwise. And so that idea of God repenting was was like stopped me in my tracks because mm-hmm. I had never considered that before. I just had an email yesterday from a, a woman who's leading a small group through my book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they came to that same place in the book and they stopped and had a long and drawn out debate. And she, <laughs> she reached out to me to say, could you just clarify when you say that God repented, are you saying God sinned hmm. and had something to repent of? Or what do you mean by this? And so I should clarify that when I say God repenting, I'm talking about God changing his mind. God has not done anything morally wrong from, for which sure. he needs to repent. Um, but it is that same word that I'm walking in one direction and I'm turning around and going the other direction. God had intended to do something to the Israelites, and Moses' prayer turned him in his tracks, and yep. and he changed his way forward. And and there are lots of theological. There's lots of people who are operating in a theological system where that doesn't work. God can't do that yeah. because God knows everything in advance. And I say, well, I'm just reading the Bible. Yeah, it would. Yeah, that was the argument that I heard was that it would actually undermine his sovereignty. Like, yeah. he already knows the best course of action to take. Why yeah. would he change his mind unless yeah. you have a more convincing argument? And yeah. I saw, I I started seeing that as a more of a relational of, mm-hmm. it is. I have, you know, I have plans for maybe my family, but my son might come to me and go, hey, dad, like, I was really hoping we could do this today. And I go, mm-hmm. because there's a relational thing. This isn't a, this isn't a attack on my sovereignty as your father, whatever yeah. that would be. This is a... No, my son, whom I love, is asking me, and like, of course, I'm I'm entering into that dialogue because this is a, this is a back and forth relationship, not mm-hmm. minions to a supreme power that can't be right. approached. Right. 
Yeah. yeah I mean, it, oh. it'd be the equivalent of if I told my kids, hey, guys, we're celebrating tonight. We're going to have ice cream. But in between the time that I said that and that we were going to have ice cream, like everything sort of hit the fan and there yep. was fighting and there was bad attitudes and there was whatever. Like, although I said we were going to have ice cream and that was my true intent, that may get revoked if the behavior between the announcement and the fulfillment doesn't merit ice cream. Yeah, exactly. And, and this oh, that is, is so good. Yeah, this is what I see going on in Jeremiah 18, where where God takes Jeremiah to a potter's house and he uses this illustration, this living illustration of pottery as a as a way of saying, and, and you can read the, I think it's the first 10 verses of the chapter, uh, and see how God says, if at any time I announce I'm going to do something, if I announce I'm going to destroy and the nation repents, then I'm not going to destroy. Hmm. And if at any time I announce that I'm going to bless, but then they go off the rails, then I'm not going to bless. So it is this dynamic relationship where God is actually responsive to our human freedom. And he yeah. He adjusts his plans accordingly. It's mind-blowing. Oh, it's pivotal. I think when it comes to the relationship, I think it, it does say something about God's intent for relationship with man mm-hmm. and that he is not like so many other uh, gods in other religious traditions that is distant and and dictator, but he is a God who is near and conversational. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love that aspect of, yeah. of it. And it, and to find that in the Old Testament is really mm-hmm. beautiful as well, because that's it something is. I've never seen before. Yeah, it's surprising to a lot of people. So we talk about Sinai, what happened there, uh, and there's so much happening. Mm-hmm. And then that mountain kind of kind of falls off the map in the story. Yeah. Uh, and it becomes a, a you know a sacred place of history where you can't deny what what really did happen there. But what you do is you actually connect Sinai to Zion uh, with a roadmap of how they connect. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you mind walking us through that because I really do believe that that the connection of the two is really important. Yeah, sure. It, it's it's interesting because God appears to Moses at Sinai in the burning bush before he goes back to Egypt and leads the people out. And part of the promise, um, part of his sign to Moses that that he's really who he says he is, he's really Yahweh, is he says, you will bring the people back and worship me at this mountain. So there's hmm. two significant events in Moses' life that happen at this mountain. And both times he's meeting God Um, he's in God's presence. He's hearing God's voice. It's a really amazing thing. But, and you would expect at this point that Sinai would become a place that's really important to the Israelites, that they would go here on pilgrimage, that they would, you know, that there'd be some extra brownie points for hanging out at Sinai, but that's not what happens. God gives Hmm. Moses the tabernacle instructions. He comes down the mountain, they build the tabernacle and God indicates his intent to go with the people. He's going to travel with them where they go and actually, in effect, move into their neighborhood. Hmm. And that's just so powerful. So when they get into the land he promised them, um, Zion or Jerusalem eventually becomes the capital city where the temple is built. And so for them, Sinai doesn't hold any significance anymore because Yahweh is right here with us in Jerusalem. Why would we need to go back to that other mountain? There was nothing inherently special about the mountain. What made it special was the presence of God. And now the presence of God is with us in the land. So we don't need to go back. Even just in this conversation, I'm, you're just starting to see these little cracks in the New Testament that actually 
make this story so much more beautiful and it's far more connected than mm-hmm. than than I ever gave it any consult. Just an addendum to that. Um Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 is so fascinating. He's he's about to become the first Christian martyr and he he preaches to the people who are killing him and one of the threads, you know, this isn't just sort of like a blow-by-blow recital of Israel's history, he's brilliantly weaving Israel's story in such a way Mm. that those who are planning to kill him are indicted as guilty. They're just like their ancestors who killed the prophets. They're just following in this long line of, of people who would refuse to listen to God's word. But one of the threads in his sermon is that God's presence is not limited to the temple in Jerusalem. And he gives all of these examples of times where where Yahweh appeared to people or provided for them outside of the land. And so Mm. there is a danger in making Zion um, sort of an idol. Like like Zion is the significant thing. It's inviolable. And he, he wants to say, hey, Yahweh is not limited to this location and to this building that you've built. He he's looking for worshipers who are who are true worshipers and he he can be with them outside the land or inside the land or whatever they are. So it kind of relativizes the importance of the temple establishment. Yeah, I never even considered the sermon that he was giving as as a tie into anything Old Testament. I need to go back oh, and, and Yeah, you, you gotta check it out. He he is so brilliant. He's got like three themes that he's weaving through his whole retelling. And by the end, they pick up stones to kill him because he's just basically told them that they are like those who killed the prophets in the Old Testament and that they're the ones who are guilty, not him. It's, it's, it's wow. really brilliant. <laughs> what a way to end your life, huh? Like, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, topped the charts and then he, then he was gone. <laughs> yeah, man. All right, let's get to Jesus. Cause I, uh, I do believe that Jesus is the centerpiece of, of Christianity. And mm-hmm. I really have been on a quest to find him in the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. um, some something that i've always been told uh and i've and i've blindly accepted it if i'm being honest i, I don't think i've really sought out uh done any sort of exercises on on seeing if it's true or not but um i was always told that all scripture points to jesus if you're in the mm-hmm. old testament it points forward to him and if you're in the new testament um you know after his ascension it all points back to him mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you if you recognize this in the Old Testament, and if so, like how do you witness Jesus, uh, the the foretelling of him, or even some of those connective pieces yeah. uh, in the Old Testament? Yeah, you know, I think I I grew up with the paradigm that there are all these Old Testament prophecies that only Jesus fulfills, and so yep. you could make a list of all of the predictions of what he would be like and where he would be born and what he would do. And then you can just sort of take that list into the New Testament and check them off one at a time. Like, yep, 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 yep. Here he is. This is the one we've been waiting for. Like it was this simple um, prediction fulfillment model. Yeah, it was a checklist to go through. Yeah. 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 It's so much bigger than that. The entire story is pointing forward to him in a way that makes him the climax and the culmination of Israel's story. But I would say there are a lot of people who go back to the Old Testament and they're excited about Jesus being the center of Scripture. So they go back to the Old Testament and they try to find Jesus and they're looking for him everywhere. And, oh, Joseph, Joseph is kind of a Jesus figure. And, oh, Daniel's kind of a Jesus figure. Moses is kind of a Jesus figure. And I think actually the the result of some of those Jesus hunts are actually a low Christology 
So you get hmm. to the book of Matthew and Jesus, the, the book of Matthew is broken up into five blocks of teaching, which probably is supposed to echo the five books of the Torah. Jesus goes up okay. on a mountain to teach. He, he reinterprets Israel's laws. And so people say, oh, look, it's a new Moses. Jesus is the new Moses. And, and I'm echoing Dan Block again when I say, no, Jesus is not a new Moses. Jesus is Yahweh. If, if you want to find Jesus in the Old Testament, go and see what Yahweh is doing. Jesus is God. So while these, you know, Moses, Moses is on Sinai. He delivers the law. He doesn't come up with it. He's passing hmm. it along. This is the word of God. Jesus doesn't come along and pass along the word of God. He is the word of God. Wow. And so, yes, it all points forward to him, but not, not in a way that we are helped by going through the Old Testament and trying to find Jesus in every story in some human figure that points to him. I think we should be looking at God and how he's acting and, and to recognize when Jesus comes in in the New Testament and speaks with authority, he can do that because he has all authority in heaven and earth. He is divine. Um, and, yeah. and I think that's a much more powerful way to, to find Jesus in the You're Old absolutely Testament. right. Because it's the same thing I've heard is like, you know, Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus, yeah. you know, Jesus is, yeah. is the new Noah. Jesus is the, and you're like, I always, I'm like, okay, I'll take that. But some of these stories might be a stretch to find Jesus yeah. in it, you know, uh, Jesus is, is David who kills the sin of Goliath, the monster, oh, you sure, know, like that sort sure. of but yeah, I feel this like is kind of an allegorical reading. I'm not I'm not a big fan of of trying to overlay stories on each other like this. There are patterns in how God works. But again, I just think it's way more powerful if we look at what is Yahweh doing in the Old Testament. Um, and oh. this this is a bigger problem in Christian readings of the Old Testament is we are always looking for heroes. We want to find hmm. someone to emulate. And it gets us into lots of trouble in books like Judges where every person who comes along is supposed to be a bad example, not a good example. Okay, so continuing kind of on this this Jesus theme, mm -hmm. um, it's it's apparent that, you know, the Old Testament really does belong to the Israelites. And, um, and, and then the New Testament, Jesus comes along, and then Paul comes along, and Peter comes along, and things change. Because it, it seems like the New Testament, the New Testament is saying, that this good news is not just for a select nation or people, but now it's available to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious um, if this jives with the entire story that started in the Old Testament, or did Peter yeah. and, and maybe even Paul make some claims that really overstepped their authority? Mm. Yeah, if you're a Pharisee and the way you're reading the Old Testament makes you the center of the universe, then it would seem like they're overstepping their bounds. But if, you, mm. if you're tracking with God's missional purposes in the Old Testament— then Peter and Paul are just discovering and amplifying what's been there all along. When, when God calls his people into the covenant at Sinai, one of the key moments is in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where he says, um, you, if you obey my covenant, then out of all nations you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You will be my treasured possession. And those titles that he's giving them is not, I think we too often think of election as though it's a status, like, okay. oh, look, here are God's favorites. 
They're just going to sit there and rest in the fact that they're God's favorites. But in mm. the book, I use the illustration of blob tag, where yep. if, if you're playing a game of tag where you're, your goal is to run around and you're it, your goal is to run around and tag people, right? So if I, if I tag you, then we're both it. And then you and I are still running around and trying to tag more people until everybody's been tagged. This yeah. I think is how election works. When God tags Israel at Sinai, it's a, he's saying you're it. Well, the person mm -hmm. who's it doesn't just sit there and say, sweet, I'm it. Isn't that wonderful? Look at me. No, the person yeah. who's it is supposed to run after other people and tag them. And I think from the beginning, the goal is for Israel to be a demonstration to all nations of what Yahweh is like. And it isn't until the New Testament where that shift is made where they're actually going out and telling this good news and inviting Gentiles into the family of faith, the covenant family. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare mm -hmm. the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's, this is an audacious moment for Peter because he's taking the titles that applied only to the Jews at Sinai, the covenant yep. people. And he's, he's now declaring these to the church, to the followers of Jesus, mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying they are God's treasured possession. And hmm. I think he's well within his... Um, I mean, I, I think he's interpreting scripture well to do that. This is where it's been pointing, but we just hadn't gotten there yet. Like I said at the beginning, this book has been so great. And even this conversation makes me go even more. I I, I want to like live into this Old Testament and I want to think this way and see this mm -hmm. way. And one of my favorite things about your writing style is how you make this Old Testament so full of life. Mm -hmm. The story comes alive. There's connective tissues that you're pointing out that I never would have connected. Mm -hmm. And, and it, I think it would be hard for somebody to listen to this interview or even read the book and go, eh, not, not interesting to me. And so <laughs> I'm curious if you were to give some guidance to somebody who wants to start kind of leaning into the Old Testament the way that you do, um, what advice would you give them? Like what, like 101, where would you start? Yeah, I would say first thing is to slow down. And okay. it, when you're reading, we, we tend to just sort of blah, 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 you know, gloss over the stories and, and not connect with them. But if we slow down and get curious and begin to notice things, notice irony, notice um, notice the contours of this very complex story, it's fascinating. I think we're afraid of questions sometimes, but the moment yeah. we stop asking questions about the text is the moment we stop learning. So, so just just go crazy with your questions. What's going on? Why, why is it like this? Um, a, a good example is the last four chapters of the book of Judges. Okay. They are some of the darkest and most graphic and disturbing parts of the whole Bible. And there are lots of people who read this and say, how could a good God allow this to happen? Or how could this be in the Bible? I, I can't understand why, why God would condone this. But no, God's not condoning this. The book of Judges is supposed to be disturbing. It's supposed to show us how far they've fallen from the covenant. But because we go into the Bible looking for heroes, we miss it. 
and yeah. and we miss this the very jarring things that are happening we are supposed to be measuring everything that happens against the covenant the covenant is the mm. measuring stick by which we can see whether someone is walking with God or well or not so you see this all the way through the books of Samuel and Kings every king is evaluated based on how well they keep the covenant that's the only mm. thing that matters we're not told you know, we're not told, except for about Solomon, we hear about Solomon's wealth, but it doesn't matter how wealthy these kings are. It doesn't matter how many battles they won. It doesn't matter how many conquests they've made or or how many great um, civil projects they have accomplished. What matters is, did they remove the high places? Did they, yeah. did they put an end to worship of other gods? It's always back to the covenant um, that, that evaluates them. So instead of looking for heroes, we can go around with our covenant measuring stick and see, sometimes the narrator doesn't come right out and say, and this was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because, sure. because we should know that already. We've read the Torah. That becomes mm. our, our test for all these other passages. So, yeah, slow down, get curious. Um, I think the number one resource out there in our day is the Bible Project. I can't get okay. enough of their stuff. They've got free videos on every book of the Bible. It's solid, solid stuff. Uh, I even I like it so much that I even put QR codes in the back of my book that go with yeah, you did. <laughs> chapter. So as you're reading yeah. chapter one, here are the Bible Project videos to watch that will help this come to life. Um, so, yeah, watch their videos, listen to their podcast, slow down and ask lots of questions. That's that's my best advice. And, and it's so freeing to hear that because, again, raised in American evangelicalism, mm. you, it wasn't safe to ask questions mm. because, mm. you know, whether for lack of interpretation or uh, or who are you to question the scriptures yeah. or who you are you to have real it. feelings about this? Yeah. yeah. And learning from 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 people that I, I know and trust, you becoming now one of them, mm. was the Bible is less of a answer book and more of a more like a box of Play-Doh that you play with and you reinterpret and you mash things together and you, 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 you wrestle with community and try to yeah. figure out what things mean. And, 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 yeah. and when you think something means one thing, if you can't find numerous meanings of the same text, you're not reading the text correctly. Hmm. Hmm. So I, I just, I really do yeah. love like the freedom of asking questions. Yeah. It's not, it's not a rule book. It's not a science book. It's not a textbook. It's an epic drama. And yeah. we're being invited to enter this story and to see ourselves in it. And I just, I, I think probably the, the biggest tragedy is when people are bored by the Bible. When those who teach the Bible teach it in such a way that it's boring people, that yeah. they, they're not captivated by it. This is a captivating story. R reminds me of a, of a line in a book by Tish Harrison Warren, The Liturgy of the Ordinary. I don't have yep. it with me, so I can't quote it exactly. But it was talking about uh, a professor gave an assignment to a student, like a reading assignment. And the student came back to the prof and said, this is boring. And the prof's mm. response was, it's not boring. You're boring. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think if we, if the Bible is boring to us, then we are the ones who are boring. We need yeah, to press in to enter the story until it comes to life and not be content until it does. That is so good. All right. This has been so much fun. Can mm -hmm. can we do this again in the future? Maybe I'll pick you up on this dissertation and, and we'll talk about God's name in vain for an hour. Yeah, sounds fun. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Yeah, thanks, Heath. It's been a, a joy and an honor to be with you. I told you, she's amazing. If you haven't read her book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, it's available everywhere. Carmen Joy Imes is her name. And uh, I hope the book rocks you in a way that it rocked me. Because once you see things through uh, a reframing of the Old Testament, you'll never, ever, ever be able to go back and neither will you want to. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.